Hey, this is Evan. Welcome back to the Full Semester Podcast. Uh, last time we talked about transcription and translation, but that's not really all that cells do with their genes. If you think more carefully about all the different cell types in your body, all the way from your brain cells to your muscles, you, you realize that these cells must be different from each other, right? They have to be in some way um, having different genes. Well, if I told you that all of them have the same DNA, then you'd have to ask the question back, where do the differences come from? Well, today we're going to talk about how cells decide and how they regulate which genes they express and turn into proteins, which ones they don't, and why. And we're going to be doing this all on the Full Semester Podcast, Episode 8, The Regulation of Gene Expression. start off today just by talking about what it is that uh, we sort of use gene expression for, sort of why is it that we regulate gene expression at all, and and it might not be such an obvious question because um, there are different reasons why you might want to regulate your gene expression based on whether or not you are a single-celled organism or a multicellular organism. So if you're a single-celled organism, you use your uh, gene expression modulation primarily to uh, change your response to your environment. So if you are a bacterium, what you're trying to do is you're trying to uh, sort of circumvent um, the selective pressures that are enforced on you by your environment. So say that you need um, glucose to survive and, uh, and you have a sort of way to produce glucose from a different molecule, but there's lots and lots of glucose around. Well, then it doesn't really make sense to spend the extra energy to produce the glucose from this other molecule. Instead, it makes sense to just consume the glucose as it is. And so a bacterium might make a choice uh, in some way or another, if you could call it a choice, um, by saying, no, I'm going to turn off the genes that make the enzymes that make it possible for me to create glucose from this other um, this other compound, and instead I'm going to just focus my energy on consuming as much of the glucose as I can to outcompete my neighbor. Multicellular organisms also have this same imperative to make the best use of the resources they have available to them. But another imperative that a multicellular organism has is to subdivide the tasks that a um, that any particular cell is taking care of because it has lots of them, right? And so it makes more sense, sort of like an assembly line, to produce different tasks for different org- uh, for different uh, parts of the body or different cells in the body. And it does this by encouraging those cells to produce different genes and proteins. But if we go back to talk about um, uh, single-celled organisms, bacteria, for example, they have a gene expression protocol that's called the operon model. And the basic idea is that you have a cluster of sort of functionally related genes that can be uh, coordinated or controlled by a single on-off switch called the operator. Um, The operon is the whole stretch of DNA that includes the operator, the promoter, and the genes that they control. But just the operator itself is this sort of switch. And that switch is often operated by the product of the gene. So if you have a a gene that produces, uh, you know, 
uh, produces tryptophan, for example. It's a, it's a gene in a bacteria that produces the, um, the amino acid tryptophan. Well, if you have a lot, a lot of tryptophan, then there's no real reason to produce more of it. And so the bacterium, uh, or the, I should say the gene that the bacterium is using, is uh, stopped. It stops producing more tryptophan when there's lots of tryptophan around. This is that sort of operon model. It's a basic concept where the the product of the gene actually acts on the switch, turning it back off when it's around. So the, the operon can be switched off by a protein repressor, which is what I was just discussing, and that repressor prevents gene transcription uh, sort of by binding to the operator. So it binds to the gene itself or near the gene, and it blocks RNA polymerase from moving forward into producing a transcript. The repressor is sometimes the product of a separate regulatory gene uh, or often the product of a separate regulatory gene. It just sort of depends on which gene you're talking about. The repressor can be uh, sort of in an active or an inactive form depending on the presence of other molecules. So you're adding complexity to the system here. Like let's say that you want to produce that tryptophan, but you have uh, lots of another amino acid that works similar. Well, maybe that amino acid binds to the repressor, which then... Uh, binds to the actual gene, stopping the production of um, tryptophan. You get lots and lots of fine-scale control this way, which is good for cells to be able to respond to lots and lots of different types of stimuli. One of the places where students sometimes get messed up with this is that repressors are... Um, either active or inactive. And when an, when an active repressor is around, it is repressing the protein. So you, so it's kind of it's kind of backwards sometimes in people's minds to say that an active repressor stops transcription. Uh, but it's in it's in the term, right? If it's if it's a if it's a working repressor, then it is actively repressing what's going on. Um, however, if you have an inactive repressor, then you are producing mRNA, right? Then you are undergoing transcription. So just be aware of that um, slightly different uh, different message that sometimes people hear from that. So operons can take two different forms. They can either be repressible or they can be inducible. Um, and there are a couple of other more sort of detailed uh, ways that you can think about operons, but in general, there are two different forms. There's the repressible operon and the inducible operon. A repressible operon is one that's normally on. So if you're if you're normally expressing the gene, um, meaning that the that the operon normally allows the gene to be expressed and doesn't stop transcription from occurring, then you are a repressible operon. You're one that is able to be repressed. If you're an inducible operon, it's the opposite. You're, you're, you're normally turned off and you are turned on by an inducer. So a, another um, another protein that comes in and activates um, the gene by inactivating the repressor. So again, this is where the sort of terminology gets a little bit complicated. But the general idea here is that if you have a repressor on you and you're an inducible operon, then you need an... Uh, uh, um, a regulatory protein to come in and attach to the repressor so that the repressor becomes inactivated and you start producing proteins. In general, let's just review, repressible operons are usually on and are bound by a repressor that shuts them off. Inducible operons are normally off and a molecule called an inducer inactivates the repressor, which then turns on transcription. 
One example that I was giving earlier is to show that cells can potentially turn on or off genes based on what they what are they're interacting with in their environment. And one good example of this is the LAC operon. That's L-A-C operon. It's a very sort of classic system, so you may see this in your biology class. The basic idea is that the LAC operon is an inducible operon that contains genes that code for the enzymes that are used to break down lactose, so the the, the hydrolysis uh, and subsequent metal- metabolism of lactose. By itself, the LAC repressor is active, which means that the LAC operon is off. This means it's inducible, right? Um, however, an inducer act, uh, that inactivates the repressor turns the LAC operon on when the bacterium encounters lactose. So lactose itself binds to a particular gene, which then produces this inducer, which binds to the repressor, which promotes um, transcription of the LAC operon. Do you understand how that works? It's, it's many steps individually moving towards either producing or not producing this mRNA and thereby sort of changing the quote-unquote behavior of the cell, being able to digest lactose or not. Inducible enzymes like the LAC operon usually function in catabolic pathways. That means that their synthesis is induced by a chemical signal, for example, lactose being present. Repressible enzymes, so the opposite of an inducible enzyme, usually functions in anabolic pathways, meaning their synthesis is repressed by high levels of the end product. So it's something that you you know so you would want to produce all the time unless you have too much of it, in which case um, you would want to stop. This is a, a good example of a repressible enzyme is the trip enzyme, this tryptophan one that I was talking about earlier that produces tryptophan. When you have plenty of tryptophan, there's no reason to produce more, so you would want to stop. But if you don't have tryptophan and you don't have a way to sense that, you would want to just produce it until you have enough. The lac operon opposites an op- operates in the opposite way. The lac operon only becomes active when there is a uh, chemical signal present, lactose being present in the environment. This sort of sets the stage for what we mean by differential gene expression, right? So when you have uh, chemical signals or when you have uh, anabolic pathways that you would like to go through with, you have uh, the ability to create differential gene expression. And almost all cells in an organism are, are able to do this. And the important thing for multicellular organisms is, again, like I said in the intro, that all cells have the exact same DNA. So you have to be able to control when they produce certain things and when they don't so that you eventually get differentiation or so that you're able to respond to all of the different environments found inside of the body of a multicellular organism. Differential gene expression really sets down the, um, the planning of the body, which we'll talk about in a later episode. And in fact, this is so important that errors in gene expression can lead to diseases, including cancer and um, and, you know, other other metabolic diseases that you might have heard of, things like people who have difficulties with their thyroid, etc. Gene expression, because it's so important, has a number of places where it can be regulated. You can regulate gene expression at a whole bunch of different levels, um, all the way from when the DNA is all bound up and tightly wound so that it can fit inside the cells, from when the G- DNA is unwound, that can be a... Um, uh, regulation stage, transcription, processing, 
uh, transport, translation, all of these um, can be places where you can regulate in addition to protein processing, so folding, um, and uh, protein degradation, so after that. So we have lots and lots of stages along the protein production pathway where you can regulate. I'm going to review them again. Chromatin modification, which we'll talk about. Transcription, which we have talked about. Processing and translation and protein processing and uh, protein degradation. So today, just sort of briefly to to reinforce the points that we've made before, we'll talk about everything uh, from, from the beginning to the end. But in general, all of these things that we've already talked about are places where regulation can occur. So let's start all the way at the top with the regulation of chromatin structure. So first of all, chromatin is a sort of condensed form of DNA. It's when you have all the DNA in your cells and you've wound it up so that it fits better. And DNA is typically wound around something called a histone. This is a protein that the DNA wraps around. And these histones have little tails on them. And the tails tell the cell whether or not to unwind the protein, whether or not, uh, excuse me, whether whether or not to unwind the DNA. And uh, these tails can be modified to tell different stories or to tell the cell different signals. And this happens through either uh, acetylation or deacetylation of the histones. Acetyl groups, A-C-E-T-Y-L groups, are attached to either the histone or removed from the histone, and this loosens the chromatin structure and promotes the initiation of transcription, so the production of mRNA. In addition to histone acetylation, uh, methyl groups can also condense chromatin. So the addition of phosphate groups next to methylated amino acids can then loosen it. So you can have these sort of chemical structures that are added to the DNA to either make it fold up or to make it unwind. And this process um, allows uh, a certain level of regulation. Additionally, this DNA methylation step that I was talking about um, sort of uh, changes uh, long-term what genes are used in cellular differentiation. So in a lot of cells, you'll hear about this concept that certain segments of the DNA is methylated. And functionally, that means that it's not being used, or at least not mostly being used. Um, And this is something that you might have heard of uh, when when you... pass on your genes, to a certain extent, you also pass on this methylation pattern. And this is what we refer to as epigenetic inheritance. So you don't just inherit your genes from your parents, you also, to a certain extent, inherit their methylation structure. And this has been implicated in all kinds of different things, at least in correlation studies so far. It's implicated in changing the way that uh, your metabolism works. So maybe you are better or worse at processing Uh, carbohydrates, for example, if you have a certain methylation pattern, or maybe you are predisposed to being obese if you have a certain uh, methylation pattern, or the opposite, maybe you're predisposed to burning calories faster, whatever. This is a new field or a sort of relatively new field of biology of epigenetic inheritance. So if you're interested in that, you should definitely go ahead and read about it because there's lots and lots of research being done. Very cool stuff. Okay, so I was talking about eukaryotes and how eukaryotes are uh, arranged, and eukaryotes are just a little bit more complicated than um, 
than prokaryotes are. We have this, we have this uh, longer set of ways that we can control genes. And most of these sort of broadly are going to be referred to as control elements. This is segments of the genome that's non-coding, that doesn't produce anything as far as we know, uh, but that helps regulate the transcription by binding other proteins to it. Control elements are um, dis are sort of uh, made into two different categories. Uh, there, you either have your enhancers or your promoters, and enhancers in general are um, are distal. So they they lie upstream of the gene, meaning that as your DNA uh, polymerase or or your your uh, RNA polymerase goes along the genome it would pass by the enhancers first if it weren't for the fact that it's not attaching near the enhancers. In fact, where it's attaching is at a region called the promoter, which is another control element near the um, gene. And so the, so the RNA polymerase comes down, it attaches to the promoter, and the genes have, the, the, the enhancers, the distal control elements, have made the sort of DNA wrap away from the promoter so that the promoter is available. Um, by binding certain proteins, just like the um, just like the bacterium did, and then the the transcription can go right ahead. This is sort of a regulated process, again regulated by lots and lots of uh, different things, either uh, chemical signals or um, expressed genes uh, or whatever. And this process leads to either the what we call the upregulation, meaning the production of mRNA, or the downregulation, meaning the reduced production or stop production of mRNA. So let's get into this in a little bit more detail. What I'm talking about here are what are called transcription factors. So what I mean is that when you want to initiate transcription, eukaryotic RNA polymerase needs the assistance, it needs help from proteins that I'm calling transcription factors. These transcription factors are essential for transcription of all protein coding genes. And in, um, and in eukaryotes, when you want lots and lots of transcription of particular genes, uh, you depend on the control elements that these transcription factors bind to. These are these enhancers and promoters. So enhancers uh, are, are not particularly nearby, right? There are several thousand base pairs often upstream of the beginning of the gene. And these distal control elements, as they're called, sometimes called enhancers, uh, may be really far away and may have very, very specific proteins that bind to them. These proteins are often called activators. Activators are uh, proteins that bind to enhancers way upstream of the gene and stimulates the transcription of the gene by either causing mediator proteins to interact with proteins at the promoter or to in directly encourage the binding of the RNA polymerase to the promoter or perhaps unwinding the DNA in a way that is favorable, that ex exposes the promoter to the RNA polymerase. There are lots of different ways in which this can happen. So if you want to think about this in a sort of general way, what happens is the activators bind to the enhancers. This is like a protein set called activators that bind to an enhancer. 
And then that enhancer sort of either folds over or recruits other proteins somehow so that the uh, RNA polymerase finds a way to bind to the actual promoter and to begin RNA synthesis. You should look up a picture of this. The sort of generalized diagram uh, has the DNA sort of folding over so that there's a big protein structure that attaches to both the enhancer and near the promoter at the same time, which then the the RNA polymerase attaches to. Um, This isn't always the case, but it's a good example of how the um, activators can have a really large role in promoting um, transcription. Some transcription factors also function as repressors. They're not exclusively um, activators, right? So they may also... um, they may also act as repressing the the gene uh, production. Some activators also um, act indirectly by influencing chromatin structure, like I mentioned, to sort of either fold up or or open up um, uh, trans- the, the chromatin so that transcription can or can't happen. Both activators and repressors can do this. So remember, guys, when I'm going over these things in this podcast, I'm not intending for this to replace your uh, lecture. So so I hope that you don't take this um, at the speed that I'm going because it's, it's very, very fast and there's lots and lots of detail and specific operons that you should know more about, the LAC and the, and the uh, tryptophan operon, for example. But I'm just sort of trying to give you an overview. So please, if you are actually in a class, do go back and look at this in your textbook or... or um, you know, go to class to hear the lecture from your professor. So we know, for example, that um, the beginning, the transcription, isn't the only time when you can change what is produced by one gene. It's not the only thing that accounts for the differences in gene expression. Transcription isn't. In fact, we know that there are regulatory mechanisms that can operate after transcription. For example, uh, fine-tuning the gene expression um, of, of particular RNAs. So we know about RNA splicing, right? Alternative splicing of RNAs. We talked a little bit about this when we talked about transcription, that you can have different regions of a transcript uh, with exons and introns, and that combining them in different orders uh, might make different genes. In fact, in many cases, um, a gene might have, for example, five exons, and whether the, whether the final mRNA includes exon 3 or exon 4 uh, makes a big difference. It changes what protein is produced. So that is another way that we can uh, create uh, differences in expression, even with the same genes. Also, uh, this can be controlled by degrading mRNA. So for example, if you have a, an mRNA that has the standard life cycle, uh, you know, lifespan of an mRNA molecule in the cytoplasm, um, you could potentially change that by having a protein sort of hunted out or having a protein protect it. Um, in general, eukaryotic mRNA lives longer, so to speak, than prokaryotic mRNA, um, but that's because uh, we have ways to either encourage or prevent the uh, mRNAs from being degraded. This process that I'm talking about is sometimes called RNA interference. Only a small fraction of DNA actually codes for proteins, uh, rRNA and tRNA. The the rest, or much of the rest, 
uh, may be transcribed into non-coding RNAs. These non-coding RNAs are sometimes used in processes that degrade other RNA. So one of the sort of very famous ways that this can happen is through what's called microRNAs, sometimes called lowercase miRNA. Uh, and they're small, single-stranded RNA molecules that can bind to other larger RNA molecules and are then used to signal to a particular protein to degrade that uh, RNA. So you can imagine, for example, that you might have a very simile, similar RNA transcript that sort of doesn't look like it does anything. But when you produce that transcript uh, and bind it to a protein, every other transcript that looks like that one gets degraded right away. And this is a way that the cells can um, reduce the, the, the production of a particular protein, even when they don't reduce the production of a particular mRNA. The phenomenon of inhibition of gene expression by RNA is called interference, RNA interference, and is often caused by these things called small interfering RNAs, also called silencing RNAs, siRNAs. SIRNAs and miRNAs are similar but form slightly different uh, or form from slightly different RNA precursors. So I wouldn't worry too much about the difference of those two right now, but those are two different ways in which um, you know RNA can be uh, affected by, uh, by uh, modification to their transcription paradigms. So, so far I've told you that you can regulate gene expression both in the chromatin, so in the structure of the DNA itself, in the transcription of genes from the DNA, and also in the sort of movement or of the lifespan of the mRNA itself, you can block things. So it should come as no surprise to you that you can prevent um, or you can, you can change gene expression after the initiation of translation or, or right around the initiation of translation. For example, uh, initiation of translation of selected mRNAs could be blocked by regulatory proteins that bind to sequences or structures of that mRNA. So you could um, potentially uh, alter how that mRNA binds to ribosomes, for example, if it does bind to ribosomes at all. Um, you can do this by modifying the ends of the uh, RNA, or you can do this by actually introducing proteins like those silencing RNA and microRNA proteins that I was talking about just a minute ago. You can do all of this to stop it from being uh, trans translated into an actual protein. Even further, you can stop uh, the gene itself from working properly after it's been translated, right? So we know, for example, that when you produce protein, you go from mRNA to uh, polypeptide to folded active protein, right? And you can interrupt uh, protein creation at any of those steps. So after translation, lots and lots of different types of protein processing, including cleavage or the addition of chemical groups or the addition of uh, particular folding structures, can be controlled. There are proteins called proteasomes that are giant, giant protein complexes that bind protein molecules and degrade them. And this is often done through the formation of a... Um, of a type of protein structure called a ubiquitinated protein. Ubiquitin is a type of protein uh, that was named because it seemed to be all over the cell when, when scientists discovered it. It seemed to be ubiquitous, and so they named it ubiquitin. 
And a protein that is bound to ubiquitin is recognized by proteasomes as requiring degradation, as needing to be degraded. So if you have a a particular protein that's been around too long or that you don't want to use anymore, all that you have to do if you are a cell is bind ubiquitin to it. And then a proteasome will come along and degrade it. So this is another place where you can regulate the production of particular proteins or the, you know, sort of keeping around of particular proteins proteins. So all of this goes to show that you can really regulate the production of uh, protein products at lots and lots of different levels, right? You can in, you can influence it at the level of chromatin modification, at the level of transcription, at the level of RNA processing, at the level of transport by altering the caps and tails, uh, at the level of translation because you can degrade the mRNA, at the level of the polypeptide because you have to process that protein so you can control how it gets processed. And even once you have an active protein, you can degrade the protein selectively by binding ubiquitin to them so that you have almost complete control over what goes on in the cell and how particular proteins are used at any given time. So how do Uh, organisms use these processes, right? Like what is it that is the point of all of this? Well, what happens is that the cells and the organism as a whole is able to change the way that individual proteins are expressed in different tissues, resulting in different development of different tissues. So this is how you go from a single-celled zygote, right, a single-celled fertilized egg, all the way up to being a full-sized, fully developed human in your late 20s. So during embryonic development, a fertilized egg has to give rise to all of these different cell types, right? And so how does this happen? Well, cell types are organized sort of successively, one at a time, into tissues, organs, organ systems, and the whole organism. And gene expression is what orchestrates this whole thing, is what controls all of this. So to undergo cell differentiation and ultimately morphogenesis, the creation of these sort of um, different ways of appearing, uh, an egg has to go through a whole lot of gene regulation. And it starts even before the egg is fertilized. So an egg... uh, has a cytoplasm, right? It has a it's a big cell just like everything else, but that cytoplasm is more organized than you might expect. In fact, it has what are called cytoplasmic determinants. These are um, substances that are inherited from the mother directly in the egg that influence early development, mostly things like establishing the polarity, so establishing which side Um, a particular uh, part of the egg represents, the head or the tail, the right and the left, that kind of thing. And as the zygote, once it's been fertilized, divides by mitosis, cells contain different levels of these cytoplasmic determinants, which leads to different gene expression, ultimately leading to different parts of the body. So if you can imagine that you have a... um, a cell that is completely green on one end and completely red on the other end, and then in between is a sort of slowly redder, if you move from one side to the other, slowly less green, slowly more red, all the way until it becomes red again. This is sort of how these cytoplasmic determinants are distributed. They're distributed so that when cell division happens, once you get different concentrations. One cell is almost all green and one cell is almost all red. And then when they divide again, you get 
maybe one cell is all purple and one cell is all blue. And this sets up the sort of directionality of the embryo. It sets up the head and the tail and the, um, the right and the left, etc. The important part of this is that the, um, that the cell is then able to produce lots and lots of different tissue types through inducing the production of certain proteins in certain parts of the um, cell. Because if you, you don't want your liver to appear in your head, right? You want your liver to appear sort of in the middle of your abdomen. And so this is really, really important. Another thing that's really important is that you don't necessarily want this process to continue once you've already produced the tissues that you want to produce, right? You don't really want part of your liver to all of a sudden decide that it wants to be a brain, right? And so what happens is as these cells get more and more directions, uh, as these cells sort of become more and more specialized, they stop being able to become something else. A, a sort of bad analogy for this is job training. So if you can imagine that you are a child, right? You're interested in all kinds of things. You're interested in computer science and art and all of these different things. But once you get to college, you sort of choose a particular thing that you are going to be good at from now on. So in my case, that was biology, right? I chose to be a, a biologist. And so now it's going to be really hard for me to retrain to be a computer scientist. The reason this is bad is because most people are capable of retraining if they have to be, uh, whereas cells, once they've reached a certain point, are not able to do this. The exception is something that you might have heard of, which is um, totipotent or pluripotent stem cells. Stem cells have the ab ability to become lots and lots of different things. That is, they have a plurality of cell types that they can become, and we call them pluripotent. They have a plurality of things that they are able to become, pluripotent. Uh, the egg, when it is first around, is uh, totipotent. It has the total possibility to become all the different cell types. So stem cells are a sort of unique case. They have the, the um, ability to be lots and lots of different things, um, whereas most cell types, like your muscles, can never turn back around and become brain. So let's talk a little bit more about how patterns are developed. And, and I'll say in advance that most of, the, most of what we know about this happens in uh, Drosophila, happens in fruit flies. Fruit flies are a sort of classical model for... Um, for studying development, and it's because they're so easy to study. Um, it's really easy to produce lots and lots of fruit flies very quickly, and you can produce lots and lots of embryos of them very quickly. And also, nobody really cares about fruit flies, so nobody cares if you, you know, uh, if you if you raise them and chop them up and all this kind of stuff. And so, lots and lots of work has been done in fruit flies to sort of discover what it is that produces the ultimate and final. Um, uh, organism from a single-celled uh, embryo. You know, and this work really started because people were interested in trying to connect uh, genes to the actual final uh, proteins that they that these uh, these animals are producing, that these cells are producing, and ultimately sort of connecting them to the body structures that um, that are produced. And um, one of the ways that they did this is by uh, using breeding experiments that, that sort of made, made known that there were roughly 120 genes sort of essential for normal segmentation, for normal forma formation of um, uh, a normal embryo. 
But this also discovered that there were several uh, genes that were not actively being transcribed by the individual that was using them, but rather they were being transcribed by the parent and then being introduced into the egg to set up the patterning that was going to be created so that the organism looks as it should. And uh, I'm only going to be talking about the first gene of these sort of two really common uh, sort of polarity genes, but there are two. There is bicoid and there's nanos. Bicoid sets up the head and nanos sets up the tail. The first one is called bicoid, B-I-C-O-I-D. It's, a, it's what's called a morphogen. It sets up morphology, right? It's a protein that determines the head um, of the organism. It tells you where the head is. And when bicoid is being produced in the um, mature unfertilized egg, it's only being produced from one end of the uh, egg. So that sort of sets up that only this end is going to be the head. And then it diffuses very slowly through the rest of the cell so that you can sort of get directionality so that the end of it is the head and then the, the, the rest of it sort of goes away from the head. And in most cases, um, this happens only with mRNA. So the egg itself has lots and lots of mRNA present. And it's not until the egg itself um, is fertilized and begins to develop into uh, proteins that you then have that um, lots and lots of diffusion. So you have uh, individual, the way that this works is you have individual cells that are producing the egg and they're sort of only pumping this uh, bicoid mRNA into one side of the egg and then uh, they're pumping a different one into the other side of the egg. So this is what sets up the polarity, right? So this is what sets up the polarity of the egg is that you have one side that is being produced to be the head and then the other side has to be the tail. And this is not the only uh, protein that's doing this, by the way. There are lots and lots of proteins that are setting this up and you can look them all up on your own time. You have bicoid, you have crupal, you have nanos, you have hunchback, frizzled, all of these really, really common uh, proteins that are found all over are being used to pattern the cell itself. These are often called morphogens. So to leave pattern formation behind a little bit, let's talk finally about cancer. And so a lot of people are affected by cancer, right? This is something that happens to lots and lots of people, and you, and you really don't want this to happen to somebody, obviously. It's, it's, it's a really terrible thing. But what is it that's really going on here? What's going on here is that you're getting proteins or you're getting expression of proteins that you don't want, right? You're sort of, a cancer cell is really just a cell that's misbehaving. It's doing what it's not supposed to be doing. And what's happening here is that there is a problem in regulating the proteins that encourage cell growth and cell division. Tumors are really being produced by a mistake in cell regulation. And what's happened over the course of lots and lots of research in the last uh, several uh, years, several decades, is that we've identified a handful of genes called oncogenes that are cancer-causing, meaning that if you get a mistake in the sequence of these genes or the regulation of these genes, then you can have a cancer develop. And most of the time, it takes either uh, just one or a handful of mutations to produce a um, to, to, to take a regular oncogene to a sort of active cancer-causing oncogene. 
And this can happen in a number of different ways, right? So just like we talked about how regulation can happen at multiple different stages along the production of a full protein, this can happen in almost all of those stages. So one of the ways that a, uh, a a sort of pre or proto oncogene can become an oncogene that is actively causing cancer is if uh, maybe DNA is moved around in the genome. If it ends up near an active promoter, then transcription might increase and that might induce a sort of cancer phenotype. Uh, you could have amplification of the proto-oncogene. So if you accidentally duplicate the gene, for example, then it, in it increases the number of copies, which increases the number of transcripts. You could also have point mutations in the proto-oncogene or in the control elements, which causes an increase in gene expression. There are a number of other genes that act in the opposite way. So you have these things called tumor suppressor genes that help prevent uncontrolled cell growth. But mutations in these genes also might cause or, or might um, prevent the, the repression of cancers. There are lots of really sort of classical ones um, in these pathways. The first one might be that might that you encounter might be RAS, the RAS proto-oncogene, and the P53 tumor suppressor gene are really commonly involved in human cancers. Um, and there's lots and lots of research going into this right now, trying to predict who may or may not get cancer with sort of relative accuracy. And what happens is that a particular growth factor interacts with a cell, right? And then that interaction causes the, the induction of uh, RAS to be sort of activated. And then through a whole series of cascades of proteins, um, it then activates gene expression. So if you have a growth factor, ultimately you get cell growth. But what if you have a mutation in the DNA that produces RAS that means that it doesn't need a growth factor to activate it. Instead, it just works all the time and activates all of those downstream proteins that then activates the transcription of growth. Then what you have is you don't have growth moderated by the necessity of a growth factor to activate RAS. Instead, you just have RAS working all the time and producing lots and lots of uh, growth. And that means that the cell... Uh, division, that cell uh, growth is not um, inhibited, which means that you have what we call cancer, uninhibited cell growth and division. So in, in many cases, this is a really important process, right? You need to be able to prevent the growth of tumors um, to, to prevent cancer. But maybe, you know, maybe tumors aren't the biggest deal, right? Maybe tumors are not so important because as long as they stay in one place, if as long as they're benign, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe they're just going to grow and you can just cut them out and whatever. But if you have a, a, a tumor that, um, that grows to such an extent that it begins to spread over into different parts of your body, then it could really interrupt other functions that your body needs to undergo. So for example, if that tumor, um, you know, Dis disattaches or it, it, yeah, it unattaches from where it started and gets into your bloodstream, well, then maybe all of a sudden you have a tumor in your brain or you have a tumor on your thyroids. And this is the kind of thing that is really important. So one of the ways that this happens is that 
a, you have a loss of a tumor suppressor gene, number one, and then you get a small benign growth. This is a polyp. These are the kinds of things that are, that are being looked for if you're looking for colon cancer, for example, which happens to, um, which happens to people when they get a, um, a colonoscopy, right? So doctors are looking for these small benign growths called polyps, and if you have lots of them, it implies that you're having some sort of problem suppressing tumors. Then, if you have activation of an oncogene, for example, RAS, then a tumor might begin to grow quite a lot larger. And then finally, if you have a loss of a, a, another tumor suppressor gene and additional mutations, then uh, a tumor might become malignant, meaning that it might be able to detach and get into your bloodstream. So you see that developing a malignant or sort of systemic cancer isn't necessarily an easy thing. It requires uh, you know, five stages, the loss of a tumor suppressor, the activation of an oncogene, um, the loss of additional tumor suppressors, and maybe additional mutations before it becomes sort of like a really serious cancer. But the problem is once you start with um, creating a tumor, then you're creating lots and lots and lots of cells, which means that you have a higher chance of getting a mutation through incorrectly transcribing your genes. So these are the kinds of things that happen in cell regulation, right? You take your individual genes and you decide, how do I want to express these? Or how is the best way to express these? In bacteria, that's done by reacting to the environment. And in, and in multicellular organisms, that is done partially in interacting with the environment, but also to pattern the body um, and things like this. And when things go wrong, they can go really, really seriously wrong. So gene expression is a very important subject um, for, for us to study, for us to understand. So after this lecture, you should be able to understand how operons work, how operators, repressors uh, work. You should be able to explain why um, bacterial genes should be in operons in the first place, and it's because they can be regulated that way. You should be able to explain the difference between repressible and inducible operons and how they reflect differences in the types of things that they are controlling. You should also be able to explain how DNA methylation and histone acetylation uh, affects chromatin structure, how control elements work and how they influence transcription. Uh, you should be able to explain the role of promoters, enhancers, and activators and repressors in transcription, even though I did sort of gloss over that. And again, check your book. You should be able to explain uh, the roles played by small RNAs and microRNAs in gene expression how differentiation occurs, and what sources of information uh, cells use to express genes at, at appropriate times. Finally, you should be able to express how mutations and tumor suppressor um, genes can contribute to cancer and what these things uh, interact, in, in what ways they interact to produce or to repress cancer genes. So what I'll leave with you with here today is something to just sort of be curious about, because I've talked a lot about gene expression and how that can help you sort of interact with the environment. But I want you to go and I want you to look up a virus that's called the Lambda Phage. That's L-A-M-B-D-A Phage, P-H-A-G-E, Lambda Phage. Lambda Phage is a really cool system because what it does is it's a virus that has two different pathways. It can either choose to destroy the cell that it lives inside 
or it can choose to not destroy the cell and just sort of sit around. And the reason why it might want to do this is because if it ha- if it's in a body that has an immune system, it might not want to alert the immune system to its presence right away. And so the way that it does this is it has a bunch of different um, sort of controlling mechanisms that help it to make a decision about which of the two pathways it wants to choose. And I want you to go and look that up because it blew my mind the first time I heard it. And it was one of the things that really sold me on biological research as a career was how cool it is to be able to study how something as simple as a virus can actually make decisions on what it wants to do. So I want you to go and look that up. I want you to uh, think more about gene expression and how that influences your life, your body, and even the bacteria that live in the soil around you. And I want you to remember to always stay curious. Hey, this is Evan. Thanks, as always, for staying around till after the music. Um, I just want to apologize for the uh, release schedule in the last couple of weeks. It's been a little bit crazy with spring break and coming back. And um, I have a couple of things that are going on right now uh, with my own work. I'm working on publishing a paper, which is, as always, a frustrating procedure. I am also doing a lot of teaching and grading. We're sort of changing a lot of things towards the end of the semester. And uh, my students have, uh, you know, exams and things like that to worry about. So I'm being sort of called out to uh, work more directly with them. Also, I have the second part of my qualifying exam where I am defending a... um, a uh, grant proposal that I'm writing currently. So I have a lot of things going on, including uh, grant proposals that are going out to outside uh, things. I'm trying to read enough so that I can write my proposal again. Um, Yeah, there's just all kinds of things going on in my life right now. So I apologize for the slow release schedule, and I'm hoping to catch up uh, with that as I go along here. Um, As always, you can email me at fullsemesterpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions. I'm happy to answer emails there. Occasionally, I'll get an email here and there, but just to make sure that you're a real viewer, I'd like to to hear from you you if you enjoy the podcast or if you have something you'd like me to change. As always, you can connect with me uh, on Twitter. My tweet, uh, my uh, handle is at EB Christie. Um, if you just search my name, Evan Christensen, you'll be able to find me relatively easily there. Um, as always, I should thank uh, Mike Enright for the music. It's really fantastic. And I should thank you for listening. So uh, please keep listening and I'll uh, see you next time.